Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, Building and Landscape Curator. And today we're sharing episode one of a brand new podcast series from the National Trust called 125 Treasures. In this series, we join Alison Stedman as she explores some of the most intriguing objects in the National Trust's collections. You'll hear the story of the sculpture that unlocked secrets of an ancient civilization, of an artwork that hid scathing criticism behind its beauty, and of a mesmerizing 18th century mechanical marvel. This is episode one of 125 Treasures. The full series can be found in the usual places you get your podcasts, or on our website at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Imagine a grand French chateau, all honey-coloured stone, rounded towers and pointed turrets. The hill on which this building stands is cloaked in trees. You wind your way up a drive which twists and turns, getting these occasional, enticing glimpses of the building. Then suddenly, you see a grand fountain, you turn a corner, and there it is, Wadston Manor. Wadston sits in exquisite formal gardens, crammed with colourful flowers and elegant statues. Exotic sea creatures and monsters cavort through the tinkling spray of a beautiful fountain. I'm Alison Stedman, and this is 125 Treasures, a podcast from the National Trust. Episode 1, The Elephant in the Room. My name is Pippa Shirley. I'm Head of Collections and Gardens at Wadston Manor. So I'm just walking up towards the front door of the manor and it really is an extraordinary sight. It's got the fantastic roof line with a whole series of circular turrets and fantastic array of ornamental chimneys, some of which have, have masks on them with gaping mouths. You do end up, as you walk towards the manor, just imagining that you are actually somewhere in the French countryside and not in the middle of Buckinghamshire at all. Wadston Manor was built for the young, soon-to-be, liberal politician and obsessive art collector, Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild. He was a member of the famous banking dynasty, which spanned Europe in the 1800s. The Rothschild family is still well known today, particularly for their charitable activities in the arts and education. The Rothschild story starts in the Jewish ghetto of the German city of Frankfurt in the mid-1700s. This is where Mayor Amschel Rothschild, from a modest merchant family, set up as a dealer in antique and precious coins. As his business grew, he sent his five sons to establish branches of his business in five different European cities, London, Paris, Frankfurt, Naples and Vienna. This international business would become the Rothschilds Bank. Originally from the Austrian branch of the family, Ferdinand, one of Mayor Amschel's great-grandsons, had settled in Piccadilly, London in the 1860s. Ferdinand's father was a Viennese Rothschild, but he was very Anglophile because his mother, Charlotte, 
was an English Rothschild, and so he always intended to settle in England, and indeed he married one of his own English cousins. But like other members of his family, he wanted a country house where he could entertain in grand style. The parcel of agricultural land he found near Aylesbury proved an ideal location, near to London and to other family members who had settled in Buckinghamshire. No expense was spared to realise his architectural vision. Building on empty ground meant the work progressed quickly and by 1880, the mansion was ready. So I'm just opening the door now. Very big and heavy door. So I'm standing in the Oval Hall, which is how visitors come into the manor. So it's a room that's lined in marble and it has a coved ceiling made out of very elaborate plaster panels and huge marble door cases which are five metres high. And so I'm now just going to walk through into one of the main reception rooms. And so now we're moving into a drawing room which we call the red drawing room which in lots of respects really exemplifies the Rothschild style, which was this combining of English 18th century painting and French decorative arts and furniture. Ferdinand lived at Wadston largely on his own. He was sometimes accompanied by his sister Alice, a great companion since the death of his wife Evelina. But at weekends, he would play host to incredibly glamorous house parties. these legendary house parties, Ferdinand's generosity knew no bounds. Sumptuous dinners featured the finest food and wines, and for entertainment, he encouraged his guests to enjoy the house and grounds, which soon included an aviary of rare birds to feed. Wasdom was built as a place where he could entertain, but it was also built so that he could show off his matchless collection And we know that when he was entertaining people at his famous Saturday to Monday parties, as they were known, that a very important part of the entertainment that was laid on was for guests to enjoy the latest acquisition to the growing collections. There was one particularly unusual item in Ferdinand's collection that could draw gasps of delight from even the most sceptical of the Baron's guests. This remarkable creature had already lived quite a life before arriving at Wadston. You'd be forgiven for thinking this huge beast might prefer to be outside in the grounds, with his four strong muscular legs, long trunk and huge flapping ears. It stands proud, blooming flowers at his feet, his mouth beginning to gape, his trunk beginning to lift, to let out a resounding trumpet. His beautifully articulated trunk and tail start to swing in circles. His gilt bronze ears flap, his eyes roll. In full sound and motion, the effect is utterly magical. Here I am, standing in front of the elephant. His knowing little eye is about on level with mine, so I really am face to face with him. 
He's a sumptuously decorated, exquisite, dark grey elephant, standing at four feet tall. You may have guessed it's not a real elephant, but an automaton, a kind of mechanical device that moves of its own accord, as if by magic. The elephant does honestly feel as if it's alive. It's the most extraordinary thing, watching it in action. No wonder a weekend party at Wadston was the hottest ticket in town. You can imagine in the 18th century, it must have been really exciting. Jonathan Betts is curator emeritus at Royal Museum's Greenwich. A horologist, he studies the measurement of time and making of clocks, and he's an expert on these moving models. Automata were really principally made by clockmakers because they required geared mechanism within them. And the only mechanics uh, from the Middle Ages onwards who were capable of such things were clockmakers. So, an automaton is rather like a robot. Each one, whether an animal, bird or person, is designed to follow a sequence of instructions which gives the illusion that they are alive and operating under their own power. These instructions make them appear to dance and sing by their own agency. These ingenious devices need no batteries or electricity. They are powered by a sophisticated hidden system of levers, pulleys, springs and coils. The making of rare automata for entertainment goes back millennia and across the world, from ancient China to Greece. But these treasures were made for kings and lords. Only later did they become more accessible, and still only to the super-rich like Ferdinand. From the early days of automata production in, in Germany, for example, during the 16th and 17th centuries, they were obviously very complex and therefore extremely expensive. They never had the essential requirement that a timekeeper has, so they were always regarded as an object of luxury rather than function. The Wadston elephant was made by the French clockmaker Hubert Martinet around 1770 in Clerkenwell, London, which was well known as an industrial hub for jewellers and watchmakers at the time and where the making of automata had become a particular speciality. Hubert was more of an entrepreneur than a craftsman and had arrived in London in 1762 to concentrate on the production of these extravagant devices. At one point, his studio would have employed around 40 skilled craftsmen, all working on the design and manufacture of the elephant. But who was this exceptionally beautiful and expensive masterpiece created for? There is a 19th century description by the owner of the clock in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. And in that description they say that the elephant was originally made for the East India Company and the East India Company commissioned it as a present for an Indian potentate. That Indian potentate was the ruler of the state of Maharashtra and the automaton had been built at the request of the enormously powerful East India Company. The company had originally been set up to exploit trade, 
But by this point in the 1700s, it had become an extension of the British Empire with its own private army. The company also dominated the trade in these highly prized automata, which were often bought by Indian merchants, who presented them as gifts to Maharajas. But the elephant never reached the high-ranking Indian potentate it was intended for. The suggestion is he died before it got to him, so it was given back to Martinet. We don't know exactly what Martinet did with this elephant. He's unlikely to have been able to afford to keep it for long, with so much of his capital tied up in this valuable asset, so he must have sold it. But for the next 50 years, the elephant's whereabouts remained a mystery. That was until, in the 1830s, he reappeared as the star attraction in a travelling museum. And the reason we know about the elephant's reappearance is because of the little clues hidden inside his complex apparatus. Obviously, this is a man-made machine which requires lubricant throughout it. And because it's hugely complex, it would have required a great deal of maintenance so that at regular intervals, the whole elephant and its base would have needed dismantling. He would have needed regular repairs to keep the thousands of tiny parts in perfect working order. Because it was quite a, a challenge and it was quite a claim for a clockmaker to, to say that they had maintained and overhauled this extraordinary thing, that many clockmakers liked to leave their name behind, saying, look what a clever fellow I am, I've been able to work on this object. So there are a number of names of clockmakers scratched inside the mechanism, giving the date and the place where they worked. Like a diary entry of its travels. From these clues, we can establish that the elephant had been bought by two Frenchmen who toured Europe in the 1830s with a huge cargo of curiosities for the delight of the paying public. Like circus men, only their animals required winding up. Open from three o'clock till ten at night. See the triumphal entrance of the great mogul on his amazing elephant. See the beheading of John the Baptist. See Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, the most beautiful woman of her age. The elephant was displayed in Paris, London, and the German cities of Munich and Leipzig. Then, in the 1870s, he was on the road again, this time with a theatre producer, a Monsieur Kashner, who toured his own show around the Netherlands in 1874. It is a miracle that the elephant's delicate mechanisms survived all the travelling on bumpy roads and rails. And it was after years of travel that the elephant finally found a safe harbour. He was bought by Baron Ferdinand for Wadston in 1889, where he has lived ever since. Elaborate objects like the elephant automaton were almost tailor-made for a collector like Baron Ferdinand. Curator Pippa Shirley again. The Rothschilds, I think, are very well known as collectors. And in a sense, I think you could say that collecting was in Ferdinand's DNA. With his elephant, Ferdinand succeeded in captivating all his guests. We know that the elephant was at Wadston 
by uh, 1889, because at that date, Ferdinand was asked to help to host a state visit by the then Shah of Persia. We know that the elephant played a very important role in the state visit of the Shah. And we know that uh, initially the visit didn't get off to a very good start because the Shah had been expecting uh, the Prince of Wales to be part of the, the reception party. And in fact, the Prince of Wales hadn't been able to come. So the Shah actually flew into a bit of a sulk at that point and retreated to his rooms and refused to come out. And so Ferdinand had to work out how to restore good humour to his guests. And one of the things which he thought he would do would be to wind the elephant. And having seen the elephant in action, the Shah's good humour was completely restored. The local newspaper, the Bucks Herald, gave a charming account of how the Shah could not be torn away from the elephant. Of all the costly treasures of the Rothschild collection, this magnificent toy fairly delighted His Majesty. It was wound and rewound again and again, and was evidently preferred to all the paintings, enamels, armour and palacey wear. Eventually, it became necessary to distract His Majesty's attention from a curiosity of considerable historical interest. It's easy to see why the Shah would have been mesmerised by the elephant long before the widespread adoption of electricity. The elephant moving of its own accord, accompanied by dancing figures, synchronised to the enchanting sound of its hidden music box. His beautifully articulated trunk and tail start to swing in circles. His gilt bronze ears flap, his eyes roll. In full sound and motion, the effect is utterly magical. On his back, a turban mogul stands proudly under a parasol. Several small scenes and figures start to move with him. Jeweled flowers at the elephant's feet open and close their petals, while sparkling ornaments spin and twinkle. And all this is set to music, emerging from a musical box hidden beneath him. In 1889, it must have seemed otherworldly. Even today, the elephant never fails to delight. I think when it was made, it was regarded as a technological marvel. And even now, I think it has that same effect. Somehow it has an incredibly distinct and appealing personality. It actually has a Twitter account these days, so the elephant's very good at social media. You get the sense of looking at something which has been something which people have been drawn to over centuries, and you can absolutely see why such objects were so prized from the point that they were made through to the present day. It's definitely one of the great, great treasures of Wadston. The Wadston Elephant is just one of many treasures featured in 125 treasures from the collections of the National Trust. A brand new book of stunning photography and descriptions of the most exciting decorative arts, furniture, books and textiles in our collection, spanning the Roman era to the present day. To learn more about this publication, go to nationaltrust.org.uk slash 125pod or follow the link in the show notes. 
I'm Alison Stedman, and this is 125 Treasures, a podcast from the National Trust. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can learn more about our 125 Treasures podcast series by visiting nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode. But for now, from me, James Grasby, goodbye. Goodbye.